We're back in the Gospels today, and Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. Let's read our text first, starting in Matthew 20, 17 into 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And then Mark 10, 32-34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. And then Luke eighteen thirty-one to 34. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, before we get into the text for today, this is the third detailed prediction Jesus makes of his suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. And the first one comes in Matthew 16 and and parallels. After they had come from Caesarea Philippi in the far north, you might remember your geography a bit, we have the Sea of Galilee in the north, up above there, Caesarea Philippi. And Matthew 16, 21 says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Sounds familiar to what we've already just read. And the parallel passage in Mark 8.32 says, And he was stating the matter plainly. So Jesus in Matthew 16 and elsewhere, uh, for this first prediction, states the matter plainly. He's going to be, um, he's going to suffer. He's going to be killed and be raised up on the third day. The second one is in Matthew 17, again in parallels, verses 22 and 23. It says, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. And then, in a parallel, Luke 9, 44 and 45, Jesus says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man was going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. So, remember that. The disciples, the second time Jesus predicts his crucifixion and his resurrection, or his death, really, and resurrection, is that the disciples didn't get it. It was concealed from them, even though Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. So today we're looking at the third and final prediction before his death. And now they're much closer to Jerusalem and the events he's predicted. It's one thing when you're in the far north, many miles away, from Jerusalem to talk about his death, but as they get closer to Jerusalem, it's really becoming um, significant to them. They're going to have to confront this very soon. And so as we get to our text for this morning, we look, at the, as we often do, at the setting. The setting, Matthew twenty seventeen, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, and then Mark ten thirty two, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And then Luke 18.31 says he took the twelve aside. Now, let me go to a map of where we are. Hopefully you can see this all right. Here's the North Sea of Galilee, just barely at the top here. We're focusing now on this, the bottom part, the southern part of the map here is Jerusalem, Dead Sea down here at the bottom, Jericho up here to the northeast, and then across here is Perea, 
And this is where Jesus has been spending his time. We don't know exactly where Jesus was when he says the things he's saying in our text for today, but he's been here in Perea. It says in Mark 10.1, he's, he's across the Jordan. And then a little later in Mark 10, it says he's setting out on a journey when he met the rich young ruler. And then a little bit later, we're going to meet blind Bartimaeus and his friend. Do you remember where they were? Bartimaeus? When Jesus heals those blind men? Jericho. Good. So, Jericho. So probably some, some player, somewhere between Perea and Jericho, whether it's on this side of the Jordan or the other, we don't know for sure, but somewhere around there is where Jesus is, likely at this time. And it's not going to be too long before it's Passover time and Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as you can see here, it's not very far from Jericho. I don't have the scale on here, but this is, this is just a, a 10-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, but it is uphill. Remember the, the Dead Sea is at about 1,000 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, so it's quite a climb over that 10-mile period on a winding road. And I was privileged to be on this road about this time last year, just under a year ago. But I was on an air-conditioned bus. A lot nicer to ride from Jericho to Jerusalem on a bus than it is to walk that. It's a, it's a long day's journey uphill. Now Luke doesn't mention going up to Jerusalem here, but he has already mentioned several times that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Just listen as I read Luke 9, 51-53. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined that as he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. So here's Samaria here, this, this area here between Galilee and Judea to the south. They entered this village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him, that is, the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. That is, his face was proceeding toward Jerusalem. So the Samaritans didn't like that about what Jesus was doing. This is Luke 9. We're now in Luke 18. So some time ago, Jesus was already setting his face to go to Jerusalem, even though it was some months before he would actually be crucified. And then from Luke 9 to Luke 13, it says he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And then Luke 17 says while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So somewhere up in this area. So Jesus, even months before he was crucified, had set his face to Jerusalem. Even if he wasn't actually traveling there, he was determined to do that, to make that sacrifice. Now, continuing on the setting here, Mark has a few more details than Matthew and Luke do. Notice it says here in Mark that Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And Jesus knows what's ahead, but he's not hanging back. And a number of commentators mention a passage in Isaiah 50 as a picture of Christ's determination at this time. Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7 says this, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Does that sound familiar? Same kind of thing Jesus would experience in just a few days. It continues, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, that, that hard stone. I know that I will not be ashamed. So Jesus has set his face like flint, and it looks like the disciples, those who follow Jesus, perceive that in his determination. And it says that they were amazed. Now, who's the they here? If you kind of trace things back, the most previous reference to they is the disciples. Uh, and it doesn't say why they were amazed, but I, I think it's something in the way Jesus carried himself that made them amazed that his, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And it also says here that those who followed were fearful. Those who followed were fearful. And this may be another category of people in this group who are fearful. It could be, could be the disciples as well. But Jesus has already been threatened with death in the past, so why would he willingly go back? Maybe he could go in sneakily, but why would he go in this public way up to Jerusalem? And more to the point, if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, 
and gets into trouble with the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, those of authority, what happens to his followers? Do I want to be associated with Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem? I, I would, I myself might be fearful of that prospect. Uh, remember, just before Lazarus was raised, John 1, 11, 8 says this, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And then after Lazarus was raised, this has already happened, remember, John eleven fifty seven says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was under threat of death, and now he's going back, again, under threat uh, of, of arrest. And certainly if those who were with Jesus were involved in this situation, they would be arrested or could be arrested as well. And then Mark continues, he says here, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So Mark, again, usually is shorter in his descriptions, but in this case he gives us more information about the the amazement and the fear of those who were following Jesus. All three, though, it's interesting to say they took, Jesus took the twelve disciples aside uh, by themselves, and as I just mentioned, there may have been a larger group going to Jerusalem for Passover, as well as other disciples of Jesus who followed him from time to time. We often tend to think of Jesus as just walking around in his ministry with just 12 men following him all the time. Well, there were others who followed him as well. There are some women we know from the Gospel of Luke. There were other disciples who followed Jesus. We meet Matthias later in Acts. He's one of the ones who's chosen to replace Judas because he, he was with them uh, during Jesus' ministry. So don't just think of 13 men around all the time, but Jesus plus could be 12 more, could be uh, even more than that with Jesus from time to time, not all the time. And But then as we're getting to Passover, we have these large caravans of those who are coming maybe from, maybe from Galilee or through Perea in this case, going up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So don't just think of an isolated small group of men here, but a larger perhaps caravan with Jesus at this time. So Jesus wants to take the twelve aside and speak to them in private. Now, at least one commentator thinks that Jesus might have actually gone into the wilderness some distance away, but I think he probably stayed nearby, just brings them to a to an isolated place to, uh, nearby to talk to them about what he wants to uh, predict of, of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, before we look at exactly what he said, you might wonder why... Is Jesus even saying these things? Why does he need to t- tell the disciples what he's going to tell them? And it doesn't say here, so we can just speculate, but one consideration is to show them that he was in control, that Jesus was not a victim of the, the Jewish leaders or of the Romans, not a victim of Judas, that he knew what was going to happen, he did it anyway, and nothing is going to catch Jesus by surprise. He's in control of these events. Another reason he may have told them just to lovingly warn them of what was to come, especially in a few days. What happens the first time Jesus goes into Jerusalem before his crucifixion? The triumphal entry, right? People are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and they're hailing him as a king. What a reversal it was for him to come in one Sunday as as the, the king, the son of David, the king of Israel, and then a few days later to be hanging on a cross outside Jerusalem. And so the disciples must have been very confused as they see Jesus being hailed, and then they're going to see him being betrayed and crucified. So Jesus is gently, kindly reminding or letting them know ahead of time and reminding them what he said before, that he's going to suffer things before he is raised. So it's not time for Jesus to take the throne yet. And then one of the reasons Jesus may have told them these things is to strengthen their faith later. At another occasion, in several other places, Jesus says something like this in John fourteen twenty nine: Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. So, at this point, their faith may be weak. It may grow weaker as Jesus is under arrest and hanging on a cross, and as he's in the grave. And yet, afterwards, they'll realize that Jesus knew what was going to happen that will strengthen their faith after he's raised from the dead. One last possible reason Jesus tells the disciples these things 
is mentioned by James Boyce, and he says this. Jesus said this so the disciples might learn that self-denial, humility, and service were to be the pattern, not merely of his life and ministry, but of their own. So that even for Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Israel, he did not attain his throne in heaven or his throne on earth uh, without suffering. Even as the disciples, we need to suffer and, and be humbled, even as Jesus was. Listen to what's going to happen uh, in just a short time. Matthew 20, verse 26. Jesus says, It is not this way among you that is lording over people. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. You disciples also need to be prepared to give your lives as well. Isn't it? He said before, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. So that may be some reasons why Jesus is telling the disciples these things. But why just the twelve? And again, Jesus doesn't say for sure, but we have seen before that Jesus tells the disciples to keep some things to themselves for a time. He's not ready to reveal himself fully as the Messiah at this point. He wants them to keep these, some of these things to themselves. And Matthew Henry mentions that outside the twelve, some may at this point have abandoned Jesus. They see the suffering to come and the death. And so they might have just left Jesus at this point. Or others who were more hot-headed may have tried to fight for Jesus. Oh, he's going to be arrested. Well, they, they've got something else coming. We'll go up armed and we're going to protect Jesus, whatever happens. So Jesus isn't ready for the wider world to know what's going to happen. It's going to happen soon enough. Well, that's the settings. Here's Jesus uh, speaking to the disciples alone, the twelve alone. And he makes a number of predictions. Matthew twenty eighteen and 19 says, Behold, we are going to uh, going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And Mark, similar, Mark 10, 33 and 34, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Then Luke's portion says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Now we have here the direction of Jesus. All three gospel writers say that Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And don't skip past that behold too quickly. Um, the ESV uses the word see. Others look or listen. The NIV just drops it all together, as it often does for this word behold. And that's regrettable, I think, because it, it even though it sounds kind of old-fashioned, it gives some extra, I think, flavor. Jesus says, pay attention, look at this. See, listen. Listen might be a good translation for us, even though it's not quite the same word, but it gives the idea of pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying to you. This is something important, even as he often says, truly, truly, I say it to you. In this case, it's behold. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We are going up to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover is approaching as it did every year around this time. So these throngs of Jews would go up to Jerusalem again, but this particular Passover is special. There's something more going to happen this time. And there are a few things that Jesus predicts. Now again, I said before, Jesus was not a victim, but sometimes you'll hear people say this. You ever talk to somebody who says, Jesus is just a nice guy, he wanted to teach us how to get along, and he's swept up and, and killed for his trouble in this, this events that he really couldn't control or even predict. But all of this that happened to Jesus was something that he knew beforehand, and he went anyway out of love and obedience to the Father and his love for us. Let's listen to a few verses where Jesus also 
predicts his death in different ways. John 10, 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. A few verses later, John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. Mark that. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to take it, lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Remember later on, Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to, to kill you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority unless it had been granted to you. The authority for Jesus to die was not in Caiaphas, the high priest. It wasn't in the Sanhedrin. It wasn't in Pilate or the Romans. It was in himself. And he gave himself up willingly. He set his face to do this thing. Even before he speaks in John 10, he, earlier, sometime, Luke 12.50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now, he's not talking about a water baptism. He already been baptized in water. Uh, any of you distressed when you were baptized in water? Maybe you're a little nervous, but I don't think you were distressed. This baptism Jesus is talking about here is not a baptism in water, but a baptism uh, of a condemnation, of pain and suffering, and, and judgment as he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And that was the distress he had even before this time we're looking at today and, and months and even years ahead of time. Jesus knew he was going to the cross and there was an element of distress in his heart as he looked ahead to that. John six sixty four says that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. It's kind of shocking, isn't it, that Jesus knew? From the beginning, that is, when Jesus chose the twelve, and he listed you know, Simon, Andrew, James, John, all the rest, and he gets to Judas. Who chose Judas to be a disciple? Jesus did. He knew Judas would betray him. He chose him anyway because he knew that Judas would fulfill Scripture in betraying Jesus. Judas was a willing participant in that betrayal. That Jesus, again, knowing these things, knew that G- Judas would betray him and chose him anyway, and had him follow him, him for all those years, taught him, prayed with him, prayed for him. Even Judas must have done mighty miracles like the others did. He must have preached like the others did, and yet he was a false disciple. He was going to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew that ahead of time. Going back even further, John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was going to somehow suffer and die at Jesus' baptism. Speaking of his baptism, in John one twenty nine, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you talk in a Jewish context about a Lamb of God taking away sin. You're not thinking of a little, um, Mary had a little lamb kind of thing with just a, a cute little pet. You're thinking about what? Passover. Right? The, the death of this lamb. And so, John knew somehow that Jesus was the Lamb of God, and by his death, he was going to take away the sin of the world. So Jesus, again, knew what was going to happen. He's predicted it several times before. This is the culmination of his predictions. So that's the direction to Jerusalem, to be crucified and to to die. We come to the fulfillment of Scripture. And this is only mentioned by Luke. It's Jesus says, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So Jesus not only had a consciousness of the sufferings, the, the death, and the resurrection to come, but the fact that by doing so, he was going to fulfill Scripture. So he has in his mind what he has to do, and one of the reasons he has to do it is because things must be fulfilled in the Scriptures. And there are many I could mention, and I'll, I'll mention a few more later, but I find it interesting to, to focus on a few passages. Uh, and one in particular is in Luke 24, and this is just after the resurrection. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Luke 24, 25 to 27, and Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, just outside Jerusalem. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so after the resurrection, Jesus speaking to these, these disciples. It doesn't say exactly what he said here, but he explains on this, this journey all the things about the Messiah that were to be accomplished according to the scriptures. And we could go on uh, uh, multiple directions here, but I don't want to focus at length on it at this point. We could mention the promises, for example, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, many others. We could talk about the prophecies in many of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. We could talk about the sacrificial system and how that all pointed to Christ, that the Passover was not just about a lamb wasn't just about the exodus, but it was a point, a thing that pointed to Christ, even to the point where it said that the, the bones of this lamb were not to be broken as Jesus fulfilled that when he was crucified. And we'll see other fulfillments as we go through the accounts of his betrayal, trials, crucifixion, and resurrection later. But I think it's interesting to see that the disciples did figure this out. Jesus had been telling them, I have to fulfill these things according to the scriptures, and they didn't get it, but after Jesus was raised, they got it. And their message, after Jesus was raised, after he went back to heaven, was that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And I have a number of verses in Acts here. We don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, If you want, I can give you the list later. But pardon me while I I sort of go through a few quickly. In Acts 2, after... uh, uh, the this Holy Spirit comes upon the believers, and Peter preaches. He preaches from Psalm 16. And he even says that... Um, that the... Uh, the scriptures must be fulfilled. He has... He, he quotes the various passages here. In Acts 2, a little later... He quotes Psalm 110, talking about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Later in Acts 3, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. In Acts, a little bit later in Acts 3, he quotes Genesis 12 and 22. Uh, this is interesting. Turn to Acts 8. Acts 8. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. We meet this this man, and Philip is led to, to speak to him. Verse um, 28 says this eunuch was returning. He, he'd been to Jerusalem. He's a worshiper of God. He's sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And he, verse 32 says, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. And this is Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away, who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So, Isaiah 53, obviously, is an example of God prophesying uh, the Messiah who was to come. And Philip uses this passage to speak to this eunuch about Jesus the Messiah, and this man is saved and baptized. Later in Acts 10, try it, didn't click ahead. In Acts 10, when Peter is preaching to the Gentiles, he's preached to, to Jews, then it, there's a, this this proselyte, this eunuch who's converted, the Gentiles at the end of Acts 10, verse 43 says, of him that is Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So again, the the Gentiles needed to know that Jesus himself was spoken of through the prophets ahead of time. A Later in Acts 13, we see Paul preaching to Jews in Pisidian Antioch, on the first missionary journey. So as we see the the gospel going forward, it's not just the message about Jesus, 
It's the message about Jesus as he was foretold in the scriptures. So Paul didn't go into a place and start talking about Jesus, but he would go and talking to, to these Jews in the synagogues about the, the one who was promised and that Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises. Um, Acts 17, we see him in Thessalonica and later in Berea that he's preaching in the Sabbath or on, uh, in the synagogue about Jesus Christ. Um, Acts 26, here Paul is talking before King Agrippa and Felix. Acts 26, verse 22. Paul says, Having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul was being accused of causing trouble of speaking against the, the Old Testament scriptures, and yet he's saying, I'm preaching nothing but what the prophets predicted was going to happen. And then one last passage in Acts. And Paul is in Rome now, and it says, when they had set a day for Paul, that is for trial, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So these Jews come to Paul and they want to hear what Paul has to say. And he preaches from the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. So that's the message of, of Jesus. That's the message of Paul, message of Philip, message of uh, Peter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then again, Peter, he says this later on in his life, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the Spirit of Christ in the prophets was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories of his resurrection, the ascension, to follow. So we could talk for hours about this, but Paul talked from morning to evening. I won't do that to you today, but just remember, when Jesus didn't, didn't uh, suffer and die and be raised in a vacuum. It was in this context of the scriptures being fulfilled. And he knew that and he did it deliberately. Let's move on in these predictions. And notice here, it's interesting how Jesus talks about himself in the third person. He doesn't say, I'm going to Jerusalem and these things are going to happen to me, but he talks about the Son of Man as he often does, and he does this about 80 times in the Gospels, referring to himself as the Son of Man. And we know that he himself is the Son of Man. And we see it in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Matthew 16, 13 to 16. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus is obviously speaking of himself when he uses the term the Son of Man. And we've talked about this many times, but it's been a little while, perhaps, and, and not everybody's been here for every single lesson. So turn back to Daniel, chapter 7. I think this is the, the grounding of this term Jesus uses, the Son of Man. Notice Jesus didn't, when he's on, this, on the scene in his ministry, he doesn't go around saying, Hey everyone, I'm the Messiah. Follow me. It's not that time yet. He does mention that he is a Christ in, in certain contexts and limited ways. He demonstrates he's a Messiah in many ways, but claiming Messiahship is something he doesn't do till somewhat later. But he does use this term, the Son of Man, from the beginning, and in doing so, I think he links himself to this uh, this prophecy in Daniel, this vision in Daniel seven thirteen. 
Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And Jesus, in fact, quotes this passage himself at his trial before the high priest. Matthew twenty six sixty four. I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his clothes and said, this is blasphemy, and that's what leads to his, his condemnation and then ultimately his death, of course. And so Jesus, using this term Son of Man, links himself implicitly with this passage in Daniel 7, and then explicitly at his, his trial, he says, this passage in Daniel is about me, the Son of Man. And so he's not just saying, when he uses this term, Son of Man, that he's just a man, but it, it has a deeper meaning rooted, again, in the Old Testament. Now, we've talked about some fulfill, the, these predictions, and we're not going to look at the fulfillments because you know them anyway, reading the gospel accounts, and we'll see them in the future. But right now, I want, I want to just look at the amazing precision with which Jesus understands what will happen to him just a short time ahead. So first of all, his prediction. And, and not all these predictions are in all the gospels, so I'll try and note where they are. It's interesting, again, to compare and contrast what the gospels say. But Matthew and Mark say, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. And Luke, again, does not mention them explicitly, but it may be implicit when it says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Who's going to hand Jesus over to the Gentiles but the, the Jewish leaders? The chief priests, here are the high priests and those of his family. You could call them the religious aristocracy. And then the scribes were the experts in Mosaic law, and we've seen them many times, uh, often associated with the Pharisees, disputing with Jesus, uh, condemning Jesus, wanting to kill Jesus. And so this term... The terms, rather, it's chief priests and scribes could refer generally to the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high court, like the Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish Supreme Court, which ultimately delivered Jesus to Pilate. And it says he will be delivered to them. And this has an implicit reference to betrayal. It's the same word um, in John six sixty four we saw before, where Jesus knew who it was who would betray him or who would hand him over, who would deliver him over. And so Judas was the one who would deliver Jesus to the chief priests and scribes. He didn't just go to them, but he was delivered to them. So first, betrayal to the Jewish leaders. Next, condemnation. And Matthew and Mark says that they will condemn him to death. And so this is the verdict of the Jewish leaders. So he is delivered to the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders condemn him. Then he is betrayed to the Gentiles. And Matthew and Mark say... they will hand him over to the Gentiles. That is, the Jewish leaders will hand him over to the Gentiles. Luke doesn't say who will do it, but that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. And this is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus mentions the Gentiles' involvement in his death, which makes sense because only Gentiles could crucify people, as I'll mention in a moment. So if he's going to be crucified, the Romans will have to do it. And for the Romans to crucify him, he has to be handed over to them. The Romans didn't bother themselves too much in capital punishment with Jewish citizens unless there was a lot of trouble. And notice here it says he will, again, be handed over to the Gentiles. So he's handed over to the chief priests and scribes, then he's handed over to the Gentiles again, the same term. So he's handed over, he's betrayed twice. Then he is mistreated. He's mistreated, and Matthew says that they will mock and scourge him. Mark says they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him. And Luke says he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And then he mentions the scourging as well. So Mark and Luke mention the spitting, and Luke mentions mistreatment that could also be translated insults. All these things happen to Jesus. And scourging is a real painful punishment. It's, it's worse than just whipping. Uh, being whipped is bad enough with the, the, these thongs of leather, but they would 
often take bits of, of bone and, and metal and, and put them in the ends of the whip. And so when they'd whip somebody, they would be actually tearing off the flesh, even exposing internal organs in, in their, their flaying of somebody. And then it says he will be delivered to death. And Matthew mentions crucifixion. It says they'll be, he'll be delivered to crucify him. Mark says they will kill him. Luke also says they will kill him. So again, only Matthew mentions crucifixion itself. And this is the first time Jesus mentions crucifixion in his predictions of his death. In the past has been he's going to die, but exactly how is left till now. So he's not going to be stoned by the Jews like Stephen was. He's not going to be poisoned in secret or stabbed by an assassin. But this death that Christ is going to suffer will be a humiliating, painful, public death at the hands of the Gentiles, the hated Gentiles. And the manner of death is going to be one associated with God's curse. Remember, Deuteronomy 21 says, he who is hanged is accursed of God. And Paul mentions that. He quotes this verse in Galatians 3. So, not only is Jesus being delivered, condemned by the Jews, he's being killed by the Gentiles and killed in a manner that shows the curse of God upon himself. So Jesus himself was cursed for our sake. He took the curse upon us. So that's the death by which he will die. Violent, painful, humiliating, public death. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus mentions his resurrection. Matthew says, on the third day he will be raised up. Mark says, three days later he will rise again. And Luke says, the third day he will rise again. And so, this is the joy out of sorrow. This is the light after darkness, the victory after the apparent defeat. Now, this prediction didn't come out of nowhere. He's already said before he's going to be raised up. And even back in Matthew twelve forty, he links his resurrection with the book of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus knew not only that he would die and be raised, but he knew that he would be raised after three days. And even before that, very on in his, early on in his ministry, look at John 2. John 2, 18. And Jesus has just cleansed the temple. It says, The Jews said to him, Jesus, uh, What sign do you show us that, as your authority for doing these things, that is driving out these money changers and so forth? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Remember, this is at the beginning of his ministry, and so it's some three years before he was actually raised. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Again, a link between the scriptures, what Jesus had said that he would accomplish, and while at the time it might have been confusing to them, when he was raised, it says, they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had said. So this strengthened their faith after the resurrection, even some three years before then. But it's interesting that this last prediction of resurrection, that the greatest, most important one, was the one that disciples seemed to miss especially. And we see their despair after the crucifixion and even their disbelief after the resurrection. Now, you think if they really got this, they would have, after Jesus died, they would have said, well, it's okay. He told us he's going to be alive in three days, so we'll just wait. But after the his death, well, they'd run away and they were despairing. Even after he was raised from the dead, he, they were told he was raised. Did they believe at first? They didn't. Remember doubting Thomas and just the difficulty they had understanding that Jesus himself was indeed raised. But he told them many times that he was going to be raised, but they just didn't get it. And that leads us to our final point here, the incomprehension. The incomprehension, this is only in Luke 18.34, but the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things 
that were said. Now you might remember after Jesus' first prediction in, in Matthew, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. After the second prediction, Matthew says that they were deeply grieved. And I read this before, but Luke says that they did not understand what Jesus had said. And it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the statement. So again, in the second time, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. That they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And it was concealed from them. And here's a similar situation here. I think it's interesting that Luke could have stopped after the first phrase. They understood none of these things. But he says it in three different but similar ways. They didn't. They understood none of these things. The meaning was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. It's like he's saying they, they really didn't get it. Jesus was being as plain as could be. This wasn't a, a parable of any kind. They just... Were, were dull. But at least they had the sense, it appears, that not to rebuke Jesus this time, as, as Peter did sometime before. And you can see how it might have been confusing for them. I mean, Jesus, after all, is the Messiah. They proclaimed him as the Messiah, or they've heard him as the Messiah, and, and Peter said, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Anointed One, he's the Son of David, he's the King, he's the Son of God, he's proven that by his mighty miracles. So all this uh, this view of Christ they had, this elevated view of, of him as the son of God, the son of David. How is it that this man, that we've been following for all these years, could die in this way? Remember 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews. What is it? A stumbling block. The Jews couldn't imagine a suffering Messiah. They saw all the the kingly aspects of this anointed one, but the the suffering part just didn't compute with them. But besides their natural dullness, there's this supernatural element here, I think implicitly, it says the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. So God is withholding this knowledge from them, but they're still responsible and foolish of heart for not getting it either. Any questions as we wrap this up? All right, well, let's close with a few thoughts. First of all, as I think about Jesus and his predictions here, I'm amazed that he could know all this. And some liberal theologians would say that these predictions couldn't have happened. They just were put in here after, after the fact. After Jesus, all these things happened, the writers of the Gospels just put this in earlier because it makes Jesus sound more intelligent, more, more sovereign. But it should be no surprise to us who believe that the Son of God, the great prophet, would know these things before they happen. So we can be amazed that Christ could know all this, but even more so, we can be amazed that Christ could know all this and still go through with it. If you knew all these things that were going to happen to you, even the resurrection part, how many of you would just go, all right, I'm there, honestly. I, I probably wouldn't. I might find a place to hide for a while. Or be like Jonah, go the other way. But Jesus, knowing all this, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we can then be amazed at his amazing love for us. John 13 one says this, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, that is, he knew that the, the, the pains that he had predicted for months and years before, were now going to happen. It says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or to the uttermost. So it was love, love for his Father, and love for us, that kept him going step by step ahead of the disciples to the cross. Remember it said back earlier that Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was almost eager to get up there to Jerusalem. To, to do what God had called him to do because he loved us so much. So we can be amazed at the the, the love and the, the glory of Christ here, but we can also, as we read about him, and we see his determination through the suffering to look at the end, to do that for our, ourselves. 
and to live lives that honor him. First Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Jesus Christ died to save us. That is true. But he didn't die to just save us, to take us to heaven. He saved us that we might be holy. Right? He saved us to transform us. So we're saved not just from the penalty of sin, the, the, the presence of sin, but from the power of sin. And so if we call ourselves followers of Christ and glory in the cross, and yet are pursuing a life of unrighteousness, that's contradictory, isn't it? If Jesus died for our sins, we ourselves must reject those sins, ourselves die to sin, and live to righteousness. And then when it comes to following Christ, we can listen to the writer of Hebrews. This passage I turn to again and again. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So set aside that sin, run with endurance this race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, as he was going to the cross, even as he was enduring the pain of the cross, and he was hanging in shame on the cross, he was looking to the joy ahead that would come when he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 continues, For consider him, think about him, look at him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against yourself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when you are struggling your, your race for Christ, and you're, you're struggling against sin in your life, you're struggling against hostility by sinners, keep looking to Christ because he endured all those things for our sake. He has run this race. He's gone up the hill to Jerusalem and paid the price for us so that we might have victory over sin ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're in awe of your son, Jesus Christ. We're in awe of his, his courage, his knowledge, and his love, his dedication to what you've called him to do. Lord, we thank you for what a glorious Savior we have. We thank you for his example to us as well. And even as we see the, the pain the cross caused him, we see the penalty for sin that he bore for us. May we not grow weary ourselves in trying to put sin to death in our own bodies and also to endure through sufferings, through difficulties and trials in this world. May Christ be our goal. May Christ be our supreme love. May we become like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.